Well, good morning, Bridgeway Congregation. That was an encouraging morning already, and to hear what God's doing in your lives. A little bit of dancing up here, um, testimonies of, of salvation and healing, and I thought maybe I walked into a charismatic church today. But then I turned around during the dancing part and saw a lot of you thinking that, you know, we have to be really calm and serious all the time, you know. Anyway, it's a joy to be with you, and it's, you know what, in the midst of the trials and the challenges of life, we gather together to be reset, right? To be encouraged and filled with joy. So thank you, worship team, those of you that shared for making this rich morning already. And I feel especially honored today to be up here when Peter Nichols spoke in church. Now, I'm still so new here that I'm more dangerous than I am factual, much more dangerous than factual, but I've read a bunch of your church history, and for those of you my age or younger that weren't around for those years, you got to know how God used this man and this couple to bring great growth and to this church, and it was an incredible era of ministry here, and uh, so Peter, it's awesome to have you here. Thanks for, for being a part of our congregation and sharing today. All right, well, so as Darren said earlier, uh, my name is Don, and I serve here as a transitional pastor. And a part of my role here in this year as we transition as a church is for us to go through several stages of, of healing and of visioning and of transitioning for the future. And I really hope and pray that we are in a posture now of moving forward. And so we have started a series in the book of Revelation to talk about the church. And in the first couple chapters of Revelation, Jesus speaks specifically to seven different churches and gives them almost kind of like a personal report card or a personal encouragement about their specific churches. So that's kind of the trajectory we're going to be on for the next number of weeks. Now, last Sunday, Darren started us off with the church of Ephesus, and today I'm going to go to the church of Smyrna. Now, just before we dive into our church for today, though, I thought, let's talk a little bit about the book of Revelation and give just a bit of overall context. Now, I have to admit right off that we're not doing the whole book because I'm a transitional pastor and I'm too much of a coward. But anyway, we're just going to do a couple chapters in there. But what comes to mind when you think of the book of Revelation? I think for some people, it terrifies them or confuses them, and they're just like, oh, anything but Revelation. And yet there's others of you that are just fascinated and intrigued and have been for years and still have tons of questions about it. But it's one of those books of the Bible that it, it just about never doesn't have controversy, opinion, or passion, or everything surrounding it, emotion. So one author talked about how do we view Revelation? Some people see it as a puzzle, a puzzle to be solved. Maybe you grew up in the era where a study on Revelation meant you had all these charts, some of you remember that, and you're trying to figure out how the end is going to happen, and who's the Antichrist, and all that kind of stuff. So, is Revelation a puzzle to be solved? Is Revelation a problem to be solved? Or is Revelation a promise? Many impressions that we have of the book of Revelation. Now, if you know nothing at all about the book of Revelation, well, that might be good because that might mean you're not tainted and you'll let the book speak for itself. But my impression would be that if you've spent any time in church or even if you've sadly watched horror movies, <laughs> you might have an impression or an idea of what you think the revelation or what's also known as the apocalypse is about. So what are some words or ideas that come to mind? 
Now, I just kind of brainstormed and had some fun with this, so I made this chart. Maybe some of these words are in your, came up in your mind as to maybe what is in the Revelation, all these cool, interesting things. So here's a little test for you to start. There's two things on this chart that are often associated with the book of Revelation, but actually are not in the book of Revelation. Anyone want to shout out what they think the guess is? What are those two things? That's correct. The rapture is not in Revelation. The Jesus coming again and returning certainly is, but in terms of the, the rapture as we understand it or name it, not in Revelation. There's one more, though. It's also a real common one that we think is in Revelation, but it's not. It's in other scripture. No guess? The Antichrist. Found another scripture, but not in Revelation. Anyway, that's just a little bit of little bit for you to think about. But you know what? We're not going to go into all that stuff because we're going to be talking about the seven churches. Now, um, the, the next uh, slide is a quote from an author, and I kind of resonated with what this person said. If you want to throw that up there. Um, no other part of the Bible has provided such a happy hunting ground for all sorts of bizarre and dangerous interpretations. And that is so true about the book of Revelation. Now, in my experience of being both fascinated and intrigued by Revelation and walking with people of faith for many, many years, I find that what we have to really be careful of when we look at this book is that we read it responsibly, we read it in context, and we read it in the way it was intended and delivered by God and through John. Rather than making it into something that we think it should be or that that humanity has tried to fit into to make their own story rather than actually understanding the story and the idea of revelation itself. It's just, if all of scripture is so incredibly important to understand in context, but perhaps revelation might even be over the top in its importance to understand it in context. You know, there's often two ditches, I would call it, when studying revelation. And the idea of my analogy of the ditches is we want to stay on the road. And again, the one ditch is just revelation is a way too confusing and controversial and intimidating. Let's just ignore it. Not a good ditch. Or there's the ditch of just over-fascination and over-paranoia and over-trying to read into things that aren't there. Another ditch to be careful of. So again, if you're on this ditch and thinking, let's just forget about revelation, it's way too confusing and controversial, you are missing out on a beautiful worship text where Jesus speaks to the church in powerful and prophetic ways. And it's an amazing book that will just transform your life. So I'd encourage you to study it more, even if it kind of intimidates you. And I'd also encourage you, if you find yourself in the other ditch, to just make sure you have balance and context and be well-read and well-versed as you interpret and as you work through the scriptures. But it's so worth doing because it's so incredible and powerful. And I, and I could go on and on. So, why study Revelation? Well, at the very beginning of the book, Revelation is one of the books of the Bible that actually has a promise that says, blessed are, are those who read or hear this book. There is a blessing from God if you read and dig into and study and know Revelation. That would be a really good reason to read it. But you know, before I showed you a chart of all the kind of prophetic, maybe crazy, interesting things that we think of with Revelation. You know, really, these are the four themes for, for the churches through the book of Revelation. You see, Jesus is revealed as the faithful witness. 
And because Jesus is revealed as the faithful witness, we are called to be faithful witnesses and resistors. That's one great theme, Jesus the faithful. Another great theme is Jesus is the present one. He's revealed as a present one. And therefore, we are called to be attentive and listening to the Spirit. And at the end of every one of the words to the seven churches, it's he who has ears, or those who have ears listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Another huge theme of Revelation is that Jesus is revealed as the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Yes, the lamb that was slain that takes away the sins of the world, but also the lamb that is on the throne. And because that powerful Jesus has forgiven sins and is sitting on the throne and ruling, then we respond, we are called to worship-infused living. And then Jesus is revealed as the coming one. And because of that hope, because of that truth, because of that incredible miracle that's going to come at the end of time, because Jesus is the coming one, we have missional hope in terms of living our lives and sharing our faith and being the community of God. So there's so much hope and so much worship in the book of Revelation. And so I I give you that in a a little bit of context. And yet, as I said, we are going to study those seven churches that are at the beginning of the book. Now, before we get to our church, one more text. And uh, just to go back to chapter one of Revelation to get a little bit of context as to who's writing it where the vision comes from and what its purpose is. So as I said, at the very beginning of Revelation, the first few verses, that blessing is declared. But then John gets personal in verse 9. So let's pick it up in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, and it says this. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned and saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man a reference to Messiah, to Jesus, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. And then it continues to describe this prophetic imagery that is telling you who the vision is. And the vision is Jesus. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one revealing himself to John. So this little bit of scripture gives us context for why John wrote and where John wrote. So we we find John exiled because of his faith and bold witness for Christ. He's exiled to an island called Patmos. And that was a part of his punishment, to be exiled on that island. And it's on that island, though, where he gets this incredible vision of Jesus and is instructed to write it down and then send it to these seven churches. Now, if I had a map up there, these seven churches are in what would today be modern-day Turkey on kind of the west side of Turkey. A lot of these cities were kind of on the coast. They were prominent Greek cities and very important cities in the Roman Empire at that time. And the church had been planted there through Paul and Barnabas and other missionaries years earlier. And now these churches are struggling in the midst of huge Roman persecution. They're they're a very, very small minority group at this time these struggling little churches in the middle of of 
of Roman persecution, and that's kind of the setting that these letters, that these letters come into. Now, before we kind of leave this text, I just wanted you to get a little bit of a heart for who this John is that's writing it. Did you notice that at the beginning of, of verse 9? It's, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus. You know what I love about this? John is not one of these self-important leaders that's putting himself on a pedestal. John is relating to all of his sisters and brothers in Christ as an equal, as a humble servant. And look how he describes himself. He's saying, I'm your brother, and I'm your companion in the suffering. I'm your companion in the kingdom. I'm your companion in the patient endurance we need to live through our time. My sisters and brothers of Bridgeway, can we be this this kind of companion to each other? Can we fight any kind of pride that wants to put ourselves on a pedestal or think that we know more or are more self-importance? Can we just die to that? And can we be a church of companions and sisters and brothers that share in the suffering, that share in the kingdom, that share with, with patient endurance? That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what we're called to be. People and community that are companions together in the journey of life. And sadly, there's lots of pain in this journey of life. Along with the joy and the good, there's lots of pain. And that's why we need each other. And that's the posture of John in wanting to have this vision be written down and sent to all these churches. Let that be our posture. Even as we approach this book and as we, as we heal as a church. To have this, this heart as we, as we start. So... Now on to church number two. So last week, Darren started with the church of Ephesus, the beginning of chapter two, and we found out that Ephesus is probably the most prominent city of that area, the largest city and the most prosperous city. So that's, in a a sense, why they were first. But now we come to the next city called Smyrna. So let's go to to Revelation chapter two and pick it up at verse eight. Revelation two, eight to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Okay, we'd have to stop there already. Now, scholars don't all agree on who is the angel. Now, since angel means messenger, most interpreters would understand that that to be like the leadership of the church in Smyrna. So I don't know this for sure, but what if it really is an angel? What if every church had a guardian angel? Ever thought about that? Wouldn't it be cool to think that Bridgeway has a guardian angel? Now, I don't know for sure, but I really think that's a cool idea. So, yeah, let that flitter through your mind as you look up and think about the supernatural world around us. Anyway, whatever it means, to the messenger, to the church in Smyrna, write. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, 
and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, we're only into church number two, but one of the things you should first notice about the report card to this church, did you notice? There's nothing negative in here. Most of the churches get some encouragement and some rebuke. But Smyrna, the suffering church, really just gets encouragement and an affirmative word from Jesus. Isn't it incredible how the church that is suffering the most is the one that's the most pure? Interesting, but that's, that's the context of Smyrna. Now, let's talk a little bit about, about the city of Smyrna. So Smyrna is also a coastal city, if you, just like Ephesus. So if you are a maps person, I should have, of all the things I put on the screen, I should have put a map up for you today. But um, if, you can, if you can picture the coast of Turkey, and between Turkey and Greece, there's just tons of these Greek islands, and oh, wouldn't you, has anyone been on vacation there? It's one of my dream vacations, is to do the Greek islands. Oh, anyway, it's hard to be sorry for John thinking of him in Patmos, right? But anyway, back then it probably wasn't as nice as it is now to sit in the sun, but... Anyway, I'm getting off here. Anyway, Sardis, though, is on the coast of Turkey, and it's a beautiful port city. Now, Sardis wasn't quite as prominent as, as Ephesus, and so as I was reading about it, there was actually a little bit of rivalry as those cities vied for importance. Um, they were both coastal. They were both um, centers of commerce. They were both quite wealthy. They were both centers for the empire. And there was a lot of competition between them. And so as I read about it, it reminded me a little bit of, it's kind of a little bit like Regina, the Regina, Saskatoon, or say the Calgary, Edmonton thing. Whereas depending on where you're from or which city you prefer, you would make a good argument for why one city is better than the other. I think it was kind of like that with, with Ephesus and Smyrna. Now I'm from Saskatoon, so of course there's no competition in, in our provincial one here. But uh, anyway, so that's, that's a little bit about what, uh, what Smyrna was like. Um, Ephesus was a very important city because it was a center for emperor worship. In fact, one of the emperors gave them special designation as an emperor-worshipping city. And Smyrna also got this honor. So it was also um, similar in the sense that it had a lot of um, emperor worship and all the typical idol and pagan worship as well going on in the city. Another very interesting thing about Smyrna was that Smyrna had a very large Jewish population. In fact, in all of the runes you can visit there, there, there was a huge synagogue there, and there's lots of, of runes of, um, of stones with menorahs that kind of archaeology shows that there was a very large community of Jews, Jews living in Smyrna. Now, you might have noticed, um, when Jesus introduces himself, he talks about being the first and the last, and also he was the one that died and came to life. Now, that's Jesus declaring himself as God and introducing himself. Um, another reason, though, that Jesus may have chosen this language has to do a bit with the history of Smyrna. And apparently, according to historians, Smyrna as a city almost died and then had a remarkable recovery and became a very prominent city. So some speculate that perhaps that introduction just made this very personal for the, a city that kind of themselves felt like they were the resurrection city. Again, Jesus wanting to speak specifically to a time and to a culture and to a city 
to give his word. So in verse 9, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. So what is that all about? Why were the Christians in Smyrna so persecuted and why were they so poor? Well, we've already talked about emperor worship. And emperor worship was a huge part of the empire because the Caesars didn't want to just be emperors or kings. They wanted to be gods. They wanted their whole empire to be held together by, a, by one religion that would unify them and unify everything about them politically and economically. So you have to understand that emperor worship isn't just simply a religious choice. It's not like today where you have your religion, I have mine, and we're cool with that. No, em- no, the religion of the empire was emperor worship, and it was tied into every part of culture. It was tied completely into the economy. And if you wanted to live well and to live pro- prosperously, you needed to be involved in emperor worship because it was just so much a part of the culture. So the fact that this, this small fringe group of people calling themselves Christians refused to engage in emperor worship was not taken lightly or taken as, yeah, whatever, who cares, you can have your religion. No, the Christians were seen as dangerous. They were seen as being anti-country, unpatriotic, not caring about the economy, not caring about the culture, not wanting to enter in for the better of all. That's how the greater culture would have viewed them. They didn't see them as this wonderful subgroup of really good moral people that just have their own religion. No, they were seen as a problem in the empire, a problem for the economy, a problem for their culture moving forward. And so you have to understand how how deep the mistrust and hate would have been for a lot of the people. Now, in order to do business in a city like Smyrna, you needed to be involved in, in what they called a trade guild. And a trade guild at that time would be similar to maybe our trade unions today. And the idea was, if you were a part of the guild, then you were allowed to do business in the city. And I've got, a, I've got another picture of the center of business, and it's a picture of the Agora. And this is like a, a modern picture of the ancient runes there. And so the Agora was basically the marketplace for business and worship. So you can't really see the see them very well, but there's some tall pillars in the background of the Grand Temple, and then these are the arches of of where they would have met. But in this place, like I said, culture and economy and everything came together. So when you came to the Agora to do business, you were also coming to worship the emperor. You couldn't separate the two. It was like they, they were together in what you were a part of. So that was the dilemma for the Christians. It was like, I need to eat, I need my business to flourish, so I need to be a part of these guilds, but if I'm a part of these guilds, then I'm basically complicit to emperor worship. And that was their dilemma, and so many of them chose not to be, and so there was affliction, and there was poverty. And there was way more involved in emperor worship than, than what we know or understand but there was lots of immorality associated with it and lots of things that would have gone against everything that they would be taught as Christians and from Scripture. And they had to stand, and not just stand for moral conviction, but be willing to embrace poverty because they couldn't do business and they were always going to be prejudiced again in terms of getting the business they needed to survive. It was a huge sacrifice and risk to be a follower of Jesus in Smyrna. 
That's why Jesus is so much encouraging them. But you know, beyond the economic persecution, there was another form of persecution that would have been devastating and surprising. You might have noticed that there's some very strong language about the Jews and even being called the synagogue of Satan. So why such strong language? You see, what we have to understand is that at this point in church history, most Christians are still Jewish. Now, there's lots of Gentile Christians now too, and especially in this area. But very much the Christian movement wouldn't have been seen as a separate religion. Christianity would have been seen, in a sense, as a sect of Judaism. And to to most people, Jews and Christians would have been the same thing. And And even to the Christians, they would have still considered themselves Jews, except for the fact that they believed that the scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus being the Messiah. But they still would have gone to synagogue. They still would have participated in, in many of the, of the uh, like cultural things that Jews would do. That was, that was their life. So the Jews were not their enemy. They were their brothers and sisters. And they were their family. And they were even their spiritual family at times. And so the reason that this language is so harsh and this situation is so serious is that what was happening here was that the Jews, who were starting to dislike the Christians, began to slander them and began to be informers to the government to get the Christians in trouble. You see, here's why. In the Roman Empire, they had a policy that they would respect the religions of their conquered nations. And so they had a deal with the Jews because the Jews were monotheistic, meaning they only worshipped one God. They had a deal with them that the Jews did not have to participate in emperor worship. So for the first while, the Christians were fine because they were basically seen as Jews. So they were also exempt. But what happened here in Smyrna was that the Jews who were starting to hate the Christians started to slander them and become informers to the government officials to say, these guys aren't really Jews. They're a completely different group. And they sold them out. And then they ended up being persecuted and being pushed out of the guilds and pushed out of the economy of the city to where they reached poverty. Now, the reason I wanted to explain that so deeply is I want you to know the deep hurt and pain that would have been for these Christians. Because again, the Jews were not these strangers who were their enemies. In fact, they were probably related to a lot of them. It would be like your own family ratting you out to the authorities in order to take your privileges away so that you can't do business and you're persecuted by the government. And that's what was happening, and that's why such strong and serious language of these not being real Jews and the synagogue of Satan. It It was a pretty, pretty ugly scene. Very, very harsh. So that's That's some of the scope of their suffering. So you would think that Jesus would say, wow, you've suffered so much, so I'm going to rescue you and deliver you from the suffering. (laughs) Not so much. Verse 10 goes on to say that actually, no, you're going to be imprisoned. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. So the hard word to these Smyrna Christians, even though they weren't getting a rebuke from Jesus, they were basically being told, 
we know it's, I know it's really, really hard for you. I know you're being incredibly faithful and standing up for your faith when it's so hard, it's even making you poor. And yet, it's going to get worse. That's not a good word, is it? And yet, that's, that's kind of the word to them. Now, one of the controversial parts here in this verse is what does this, what's with this 10 days business? Now, this 10 days business is one of those kind of prophetic imagery things that can get taken all over the place into some crazy interpretations. I would suggest to you that, that most scholars would understand this 10 days to be figurative for a short but intense duration. So basically the idea, figuratively of 10 days, is the idea that it's going to be intense but short. So it's not meant to be a literal 10 days, it's meant to be a, dur a duration of time. Now probably, and again most scholars would, would suggest this, the, the, the idea of 10 days comes from the Hebrew scriptures and specifically comes from the book of Daniel. And if you, if you know the story in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his friends asked the authorities to be tested for 10 days because they were in exile and trying to stand up for God in a pagan nation. And so that idea of 10 days became synonymous with a time period of testing. So that would be, that what I would suggest would be the most common view as to what the 10 days means. One view that I discovered that I'll just share with you because it was kind of a fun one, don't know if it's true or not, but a history geek like me loves stuff like this. But anyway, um, Revelation was probably written around 96, and um, so think of that year, 95, 96, and then jump all the way ahead to 313. At 313, there was an emperor named Constantine who became a Christian and declared Christianity legal. So between 96 and 313, history tells us there were 10 emperors that persecuted Christians. So some speculation is maybe the 10 days refers to the 10 emperors who persecuted Christians during that era. Interesting, fascinating. There's only one part that really bugs me about that idea. If Jesus is saying that a short and temporary season of persecution is 200 years, that doesn't sound too encouraging, does it? <laughs> Yet at the same time, is God's view ever like ours? Well, yeah, it, it's amazing to think about. But again, most likely this isn't literal, but, it's, but basically they're being encouraged that this, you're going to face some pretty severe persecution, but it's actually going to be um, short in duration. And so again, the challenge for them is, can you be faithful? So, what does Jesus say in the middle of verse 10? He says, so in light of all of this really, really, really hard and not so wonderful news, he says, be faithful. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now, other translations and, and the translation I was used to years ago, rather than the victor's crown, talked about the crown of life. Old NIV was my favorite. It just said, for overcomers, you will achieve the crown of life. And there was just something really inspiring about that. But what Jesus is saying here is that if you are faithful, you will be given this crown of life, this crown of eternal life. Now, the, now the crown, the victor's crown, was very, a very common thing that they would have understood. So the crown looks like what you see on the picture. It would have been... Um, 
something that would have been weaved together with figs in a circle. It wasn't like what we think of with the, with the pointy European-looking crowns. So the, the Greek or the Roman crown was something that was given as an honor to someone. And often at something like the Olympic Games, the victor or the winner of the race would get one of these wreath crowns to wear as a sign of honor. So that's kind of the picture, the victor's crown for being faithful and enduring. And then Jesus says in verse 11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So in this incredibly hard word of suffering and persecution to a church, Jesus' words of encouragement, I have to be honest and say they're, they're tough words of encouragement. These are, there's nothing light and airy about this word. Jesus is basically saying, you may need to endure to the point of death, but here's the victory. The victory is the crown of life, eternal life that I've purchased for you. And then the promise that physical death is real and is going to happen to you one way or the other. But in Christ, there's no spiritual death. That's the second death. There's no spiritual death when you're in Christ. And eternal life and life with Christ is that promise. Now when I think about this word, I find it so sobering because when I think of the times or the seasons of trial in my life, there's so many ways to think about it, right? So I just want you to imagine for a moment and think back to what you would call a season of trial in your life. And maybe for some of you, that's right now. Right now, you're in the middle of a season of trial. Now, once you've been through it and you look back at it years back, right, you can go, wow, that was really hard. But you know what? Now I can see where God was. Now I can see what I needed to learn and what good came out of that, right? But when you're in the middle of it, well, I don't know about you, but when I'm in the middle of a season of trial, I'm mad at anyone who tries to give me those kind of words. I'm like, oh, I don't want to say it out loud, but I would just want to say, shut up with your, God will work everything out for the good. I'm just mad at that point, right? I'm hurt and I'm wounded. I'm in the middle of that season of trial and this doesn't seem very comforting. Right now, it just seems like this will never end. This is just going to go on forever. And that's so hard. And I just, I just want to say heart to heart, if you're in a season like that right now, my heart goes out to you. I don't think there's condemnation for you in any way from Christ. I think his heart breaks with you. And his promise to you would be, I am with you. And yeah, you're going to maybe have to endure longer. And he never makes promises as to exactly when but he does promise his presence and he promises the crown, the crown of life. And so my heart goes out to you. I believe Jesus' heart goes out to you. And I would encourage us to be overcomers and to hold out for that victor's crown. And also, if you can look back and remember him being faithful through past seasons, even though those ones often felt like they would never end, they did, didn't they? and you saw God's faithfulness. That's hard to do, again, when you're in the middle of a new one, but I encourage you to hang on to that promise. This incredible word of Jesus to affirm a church that was in deep suffering.
and his word to us today. Um, one, one last quote as I conclude. This is actually apparently said by Billy Graham. He said, suffering has a mysterious unknown component. Again, when we're in the middle of it, we have no clue as to why, and really all we want to do is say, unfair God, deliver me. And yet somehow, somehow God is in it. Somewhere God is in it. And most often, we don't know. We don't get it. And that's the hardest place to be in faith. That's the hardest place to keep our trust going. When we want to give up, when we're not getting the answers we want or feel we deserve. And to say, God, can we trust you? That you're up to something. And so for each of you personally, I pray and encourage you to to apply this as the Holy Spirit's leading you. And let me just say to us as Bridgeway Church, I really hope and pray that our 10 days is over and that we can begin to move forward in hope. As, as James 1.12 says, they're blessed as the one who persevere under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll come. We're, we're going to close with a hymn, maybe one of the most well-known hymns of the church. It's a hymn called, It Is Well. It Is Well With My Soul. This is the first verse. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. The gentleman that wrote this song wrote it after losing his family to tragic death. Can you imagine experiencing that and penning these words? I can't. I have a little bit of trouble in my family and I'm screaming at God for justice and for him to have mercy on me and to change my circumstances and to help me and to be there. And oh, I'm so pathetically weak. And yet I just marvel at someone who in that kind of tragic loss could say, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with Jesus today. But his promise of this crown of life, this eternal life, this no second death, this promise is for all. All who will believe on Jesus and accept his work in your life. If that's your heart desire and that's your prayer, that promise is for you. And you know, it doesn't matter how angry you feel today how distant you feel today, how lost you feel today, how far from God, how hypocritical you feel, none of that matters. The truth is, Jesus died for you, Jesus loves you, Jesus calls you, Jesus wants to be in your life and to give you the gift of eternal life. You have to just accept it and believe it in faith and these promises become yours. I hope that we can all sing today, it is well with my soul. No matter what's going on in life, his presence and his promise of hope is why we can sing, it is well with my soul.
Let's stand and sing together.
still has my mic on. Just want to say you are dismissed, but uh, I've just sensed that maybe some people would like prayer today. So Pastor Darren and I will be available at the front. If any of our prayer team um, want to join us, um, our prayer room is also open, which is down this hallway to the side. And I believe someone will be in there if you would prefer a more private spot to have someone pray for you. But uh, we'll make ourselves available and uh, please feel free to come and come if you'd like prayer. So God bless you as you go from this place today.